Hello and welcome to Everything Considered. My name is Gautam. And my name is Samson. And today we have another episode of On The Fly For You, where I'll bring up something that's been on my mind recently. And Samson and I will have a totally unrehearsed conversation where we explore it and see what new understanding of the world we synthesize together. There's no script, no agenda, and no end goal. And I think for this conversation, we've uh, attributed a, a motto to some of these conversations, and we would like ourselves to embrace the tangent. So Gautam brings up some thoughts uh, on perspective, uh, about perspective in different kinds of relationships, but also uh, in terms of different time points in our life and how we uh, reflect on uh, landmarks and, and milestones that we hit as we progress through time. And uh, all in all, we, we do go on a series of tangents, but I think in the end we do uh, wrap up things in uh, a way that reconnects with the initial thing that Gatham had brought up more so than in some of our other talks. So uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah, I think we we will mention the word perspective close to a hundred times throughout this conversation, <laughs> but we will we will bring it back to perspective. So uh, with that, uh, let's talk about perspective. Tell me more. I wanted to bring up a little something I was thinking about a couple of weeks back and I've been thinking about it for a while now but essentially towards the beginning of the year um, like February March ish for ever since like undergraduate I have been applying to like you know summer research programs and summer research uh, positions and things like that and the application for that is always January, February, March, around then. And every time I do pretty much the same thing where I type up an email uh, to a researcher whose research I find interesting, send it off to them and like cross my fingers and hope for a response. And my interaction uh, in that context kind of ends at that. Uh, most times uh, people don't respond to my emails or uh, if they do, it's usually, oh, sorry, like we don't have a position available for you or something like that. Every once in a while, something will stick. And every once in a while, uh, someone will respond and say, sorry, like we'd love to help you out, but we can't maybe like look into these labs. So uh, definitely have some varied success with that. But one thing that I've been thinking about is every single year I've been doing this uh, in like January, February, I'll be sending emails to researchers and stuff. And I think this year, or maybe last year was, the, not last year, but I think this year was the first time that for some reason I started thinking about it uh, from their perspective. And I was thinking, okay, so from my perspective, I send them an email, I type up an email, say, hey, uh, Dr. Blah, 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 I find your research on this very interesting. I would love to explore like this specific aspect of it. Uh, do you have space in your lab to accommodate a student this summer? Uh, or do you have the bandwidth to mentor someone this summer? That's that's how I usually see it. But from their perspective, what happens is they are in clinic or something like that and they come back to their desk or they're doing research and they come back to their desk and they're working and all of a sudden they get a little bading, uh, oh, email from an external source and it says my name and uh, oh, there's some student who's interested in doing research with me. This was the first time that I thought like, I wonder what, it must be on that end. So they get an email from me and now they have to evaluate. 
do we accept students? Do we have space in our lab? Uh, is this something I even want to be doing? Is my lab even functional? There's, there's all these different things that they think. Some of them don't have much time and they send off a quick response. They're like, hey, sorry, um, no space in the lab this summer. Maybe try next summer. Some of them don't respond because they're extremely busy. And some of them, they evaluate it. They think about it. They look at my resume. Uh, they, uh, if I have, uh, if it was through like a program, they'll look at my essays and things like that. And they'll consider me and they'll think, yeah, this person's a good fit. So after, I don't know how many ever hours that would take, they've considered me and then they'd be like, yeah, sure. Uh, why don't we talk about it? The reason I, I'm bringing this up is because this is something that I've done every single year, uh, but I've only ever thought about it from my perspective. And so I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about your thoughts on perspective and how how you've experienced different perspectives in, in your life and how how different things can be when looking at things from a different point of view. And I think one good example that we all get two perspectives of is like applying to college and then helping other people apply to college. So, or, or applying to med school, et cetera, where we're on one side of the fence where we need to apply, we need to write essays and everything. And we usually get help from those uh, who have gone through that experience. And then once we're on the tail end of it, we help those who, who come after us, you know, and we edit their essays or help them with interviews, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, uh, kind of an open-ended question. What are, what are some experiences you've had with different perspectives? And has there ever been a time where uh, you've all of a sudden thought about something uh, from someone else's perspective and had kind of a, a whoa moment? Hmm, that's interesting. I... It, it's it's funny you bring up the example of uh, like mentors in in science and in medicine because <laughs> I was thinking about this recently where um, uh, because you know right now second year of med school next year we're going to rotations mm -hmm. we're thinking about specialties we want to see what uh, kind of career path is the right fit for uh, the things that are our priorities and line up with the uh, kind of incentives that we have in mind. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, you, you know, so right now I'm thinking about uh, emailing uh, potential people that I might be interested in shadowing or, or working with in some capacity mm -hmm. uh, in clinic. And then I realized that the first time I sent an email to um, some faculty here was uh back in my like junior year of college mm -hmm. where um i had or no not junior of college junior of high school <laughs> where um mm. one of my one of my friends uh he did something where he was doing some um like shadowing at a clinic mm -hmm. and then i was like oh maybe i should i should do something like that and then i just like without giving it any real thought uh, I was like, oh, neurosurgery seems cool. <laughs> and then uh, and then I just go into the like Stanford neurosurgery faculty page. Mm -hmm. And then I just email like one of the chairs of neurosurgery like, hi, I'm a high school student. I'm really interested in neurosurgery. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if I could um, shadow you at some point to um, to better understand if, uh, if like medicine is the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I remember at the time I, I messaged a few people and um, I thought it was very rude that a few of those people did not respond to me. <laughs> <laughs> but but one, one person did respond to me and um, he said uh, like, hey, 
um, you know, we usually only take uh, like medical students or sometimes undergrad students. Uh, uh, I don't think the the best insight about whether medicine is right for you is, is for you to watch uh, a neurosurgery um, uh, happen. But um, but yeah, uh, feel free to email me uh, maybe like later in your training or your, in your career. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay, that's a bummer. I guess I'm not going to do any neurosurgery stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> in high school. But now I think back about that <laughs> and think about if I received this email from a high schooler who just emailed uh, in, in this hypothetical, I'm like the chair of neurosurgery. Right. And some high schooler just tells me like, oh, I think I'm interested in medicine. <laughs> Can I see you in clinic? I would just be like, oh, my God, this this person needs to just get out of my inbox. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't have time for this. And uh, I mean, you know, n- now, obviously, something like that is much more relevant because mm-hmm. uh, I think we have we have a better understanding of what like the rigor of, of different specialties are and understanding if things are right fit are uh, an important aspect of the decision-making process that we're making the next three years. But it's definitely not something that a like, 17-year-old needs to think about and should not be the the reason why someone goes into medicine because mm-hmm. of this very like niche thing that they're looking at. Right. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember just back then how I was... Uh, there, there was definitely like just this ignorance about... Um, Thinking like, oh, these these professors are so rude. They don't <laughs> respond to my emails. I, I sent such a nice email to them. But in, in my mind now, I would be so annoyed if, um, if like a high schooler who doesn't really uh, mention anything about like the reasons why they might want to go to medicine or anything, just out of the blue. So I like neurosurgery. Can I like see you? I, I would be a little bit annoyed by that. Um, well, at the same time, I, I think... Uh, a curiosity like that is healthy and is is something that should be cultivated. Uh, I feel like if I was in, in the position of the people that I'd emailed, um, I don't think I would be the most receptive. As uh, which is similar to <laughs> what their response was right. <laughs> when they either emailed me or failed to email me. Um, but you know, I, I think that 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 changes as as we progress in our training and as we progress in our education. Um, because I, I feel like when uh, there, there is this certain level of, uh, of bandwidth that, are, that a person has mm-hmm. when, um, when they, they reach a level where they do have uh, a level of like, knowledge and experience that would be helpful for someone else. But at that time point in their training, for themselves, it, it's not the most productive thing for them to do to um, take on a mentor or take on a mentee um, because they just, they just don't have the bandwidth to do that effectively. Whereas what I have noticed from some, some other folks uh, are people who have spent a little bit more time in whatever niche they're in and have kind of established themselves or are comfortable in their space and are not necessarily working about the worrying about the um, next uh, promotion or the next uh, uh, kind of benchmark they need to hit on their tenure track. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like those people are are, are very open to um, taking on this uh, uh, this role of, of, of giving back because because they have the they have the the knowledge base and the potential and the um, the ability to make a real impact, but they also have the time 
and um, the resources to do so in a way that's effective. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I noticed that, I, I feel like that that's changed the way that sometimes I look now at, uh, at people to reach out to when, I, when I'm looking for a mentor. I think uh, when, I, when I went to college, the, uh, the primary thing I looked for when I was doing a research lab was, uh, hey, I want to do cool research, this sounds like cool research. Let me just email the PI and see if I can join the lab. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really pay any real attention to like who would, would my mentor be? What is the personality match? Um, what, uh, where is, is my mentor in their training? Uh, and how does that reflect their ability and their capacity to, uh, to help me progress in, in my own uh, development? And uh, I think that, that, for me now is a is is a much more salient thing that I keep in mind when trying to make these decisions because instead of necessarily looking uh, at what uh, research opportunity seems the coolest to me, uh, which which there are many, um, I, th- I think I, I look for sometimes these softer attributes of uh, like have they gotten any like teaching awards in the past? Have, have they shown any like commitment to this uh, to to mentoring someone have they uh, been doing this for a while? Have they had previous mentees that they've had? Mm-hmm. Uh, can I reach out to those previous mentees and do they have positive things to say about their uh, experience with this mentor? And I think I think that is actually a really important thing to understand what the perspective is for the other person uh, in the sense that like do they, like if that other person has the capacity to make a real impact and the willingness to make a real impact. Uh, cluing into that before committing to something, I think is actually uh, hugely important because I, I mean, I, I like an undergrad, I just emailed like the first lab I thought was interesting and then I stayed in the lab for the next four years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't as much of a, an informed decision and uh, a necessarily uh, thoroughly thought out decision compared to some of the decisions I'm making right now in terms of um, how I want to, uh, deliberately make my commitments. Um, and I, I, I think when, when making that decision, uh, it is important to put yourself on the perspective of the person who is on a different hierarchical level than you to be able to, to see if you were in that position, would you be able to fulfill the, uh, kind of benchmark things that the, the other person is looking for. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I, I guess that's just something that um, I've been keeping more in mind recently when I'm specifically looking to try to build my network in certain ways and trying to get more mentorship in the spaces in which I want to develop more in. And uh, I think has has led to a more, um, I think, discerning uh, process mm-hmm. in terms of, of selecting for, for people to reach out to and to, uh, to email and, and, and get a relationship started with. Yeah. I think, I think how we go about choosing a mentor is, is not really something that we're ever taught. And we kind of, I feel, I feel like we, we've both had our own experiences with like feeling out how, how best to go about like choosing a mentor based on, based on, uh, what kind of research they're doing, what kind of mentor they will be, like what the interpersonal interaction is going to be like. 
And I feel like I'm I'm pretty thankful that most of my mentors, if not all of them uh, that come to mind right now, uh, have been really good mentors. I've I've heard horror stories of people being like, "Oh my God, this guy is," uh, he he's like very non-communicative and has like very high expectations and uh, like that kind of thing. And then I've heard the other end of the spectrum too, where uh, wow, this guy is super interested in my development and he's like always keeping in touch. He like texts me and all that kind of stuff. And I think I'm I'm very happy to to say that most of my mentors have been on the super super supportive side, and like I'm very thankful for that. Uh, I do think that most of that was out of luck because just like you, when I when I seek out an opportunity, I mostly do it uh, thinking if this is if this research sounds cool, I want to dive into it. And who the mentor is uh, depends on what kind of research they've done in the past is that the direction the lab is going in is that the direction I want to go in um and it's never really been a a matter of who is that person you know when at the end of the day the interpersonal interaction is between two people and like you're saying uh we can we can see if like that person has teaching awards or if they have like a history of mentorship and that sort of thing. I think I think those are all really good things to look into that that I've never thought about. And I guess retrospectively, uh, one of my main mentors uh, throughout undergrad, uh, he's received multiple uh, mentorship awards, not for mentoring me, but for mentoring residents and that sort of thing. And so I guess uh, it goes to show like I, I knew that he was uh, an amazing mentor beforehand itself. And uh, it's like paying off for him in, in another sense. But I I'm now I'm wondering what are all of like the, the different details that make a good uh, mentor mentee match? I think I think one part of it is uh, do they have interest in mentoring? Like that's something that honestly I haven't considered as often as I should. Like the first the first thing for me is always do we mesh in terms of like what our interests are? And then secondly uh, would be, is this going to be convenient for both of us? Like, are they, are they uh, at, at the same institution, et cetera, et cetera. And then after that, like way down the line, if on the line at all is what are our personalities like? And that's something that I guess you only get from having a, a face-to-face interview or phone interview um, or working with the person for a while. And so that's part of it. And then another part of it is, uh, like you're saying, what career stage are they in? Uh, are they in a place where mentoring is a mandatory part of their um, faculty position? Are they interested in mentoring? Is that something they've always wanted to do? And that's something they're going to keep as part of their career? Um, is it? Are they like a, a young uh, faculty member and they need to do some mentorship uh, like out of obligation in order to go up the ranks. I think those are all very interesting things to think about. And once once you kind of start thinking about it from their shoes, that they have all of those different things to think about, I think it starts making more sense why some people would not have responded to your emails and why some people would say, yeah, great, you want to explore neurosurgery? Uh, you want to like get into college first? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of um, uh, when, or like right now, I, I have some cousins who are uh, just entering college and, and some that are interested in going to things that are STEM related and asking advice about, about research. And then I think the, the anecdote that I tell them is about uh, 
kind of a, a regret that I have, uh, or not necessarily a regret, kind of like a qualified regret in the sense that um, when I was in my freshman year and I was, I was emailing labs, mm-hmm. uh, there was one lab that I was looking at that um, it sounded really cool. They were doing like neuroelectrophysiology work. And um, I went in and uh, I was talking to the PI directly. And um, the PI, had, uh, we, we had a really good talk. Uh, he said that he's uh, kind of like wrapping up his uh, his lab work in the next like two to three years. So he's having like fewer members, like fewer grad students in the lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lab's getting smaller, but um, but now he has a lot more time to invest in uh, in a student, and uh, and he has some work, some like important work that, that he still wants to get done before he retires, mm-hmm. and that he would be able to provide this like very direct mentorship and and all these things that retrospectively like would be great because like this is. Uh, like an established PI at the school that's been there for a long time, that is well published. Right. Uh, for for him at the onset to say like, "Hey, I will like be a like one on one mentor for you." Uh, that's something that is is atypical in uh, a lot of I think dynamics in the undergraduate research space. Yeah. But uh, I remember I was like, "Oh wow, this is great!" And then he he showed me some of the initial work that he needs to get done in like next couple of months, and I think he had. I forget what the specific organism was, but it was some kind of like millipede or centipede that they were doing their electrophysiology studies on. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the um, kind of initial experiments that needed to be done for this specific uh, idea that he had was you had to um, basically stimulate one end of this uh, millipede by just poking it with like a small stick mm-hmm. and then like recording like the electrical readings of the response that the millipede has from like that. And I remember when I first saw that, I, I just wasn't super excited about the um, like the, the the process of it all, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, this seems not the the coolest research I could be doing. Uh, and then when I was I was shopping around at some other labs, and there was this one lab at this fancy new building that was doing stem cell stuff, and I was like, oh wow, this is really cool. And then I um I, I just jumped on uh, joining that lab and that was one where, where the PI, I never really interacted with the PI. The PI um, told me to contact a postdoc that was working in the lab and uh, the, the postdoc, you know, he, he was a, a great guy and he uh, helped me a lot over the course of the four years and um, at the at the end of the day, he, he did help me uh, get published w- with him uh, mm-hmm. but it was a, definitely a very different research experience being with someone who was just starting out their independent like research training like he had was just starting his postdoc as i was starting my undergraduate uh uh like years and to it's just a very different place in terms of you know he needs to uh get different things set up so that so that he can do the kind of work that he wants and at the same time he's trying to balance uh uh having me have a good learning experience but but that's challenging when 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 you have so many commitments as a postdoc and, and trying to uh, fulfill this uh, this mantra of, of publisher parish, right? right. Uh, and I think uh, f- for that, like like even though the the research seemed uh, sexier in some ways, uh, the, the there was definitely a difference compared to if I had joined up with this uh, this other PI who had said he would be a direct and one-to-one mentor in a very small, intimate lab setting 
that he'd provide uh, a lot of guidance and feedback, I'm sure not just on the research we were doing, but on the general uh, uh, like research and scientific progress that, that we can make. Mm-hmm. Um, in retrospect, I, I feel like I may have wanted to choose the, the mentorship uh, element over the coolness of the, of the research, mm. you know, and I, I think I, I wanted my cousin especially to take that into account when he was making his decisions about uh, deciding which lab to join and to not join too quickly and know that if you want to do anything um, productive, you'd want to stay in a lab for a long amount of time. So, so take this decision with uh, with a certain amount of weight when you're when you're finally deciding on, on what to do. I think that there, there are so many things that we have to consider when we're choosing a lab. And the first thing that I always think about is the coolness of the, the lab and the coolness of the project and that sort of thing. And I think all of the decisions I've made in the past have to do with that because you're kind of thinking about what is it that I'm going to be working on for 80 hours a week for the whole summer or for, you know, 10 hours a week during the course of the year? What is it that I'm going to be spending so much time with? Like, am I going to be in a fume hood or uh, am I just going to be pipetting back and forth? Or am I going to be working with animals? Am I going to be outside? There, there's so many different factors there. And I think the other things about the lab kind of don't really cross our minds. So there, there was one time where I had to choose between uh, an extremely well-established lab that uh, was working with CRISPR when CRISPR was the the next big thing. And so obviously that would look good on my resume if I wanted to go into some sort of uh, genetic engineering or something like that for, for grad school or med school or something like that. Um, versus a much tinier lab uh, that was actually headed by uh, an MD and not a PhD. And uh, so he was much more clinically oriented, but also had this lab on the side in case he wanted to explore something. And it was like a a bioengineering project that I was a little more interested in. I ended up choosing that lab, uh, even though I knew kind of from the get go, like it's unlikely that I'm going to get any publications out of it. But hey, if I'm working 80 hours a week for over the course of like 12 weeks, that is what I would rather do than pipette clear fluids from one tube into another and hope that uh, my transfections are working or whatever. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And now I'm trying to think about, uh, since I started like this conversation by talking about perspective, what what does it seem like to the PI when they're offering this kind of position to uh, even a postdoc or a grad student or a med student, you know, when they themselves know, like, I have so many publications or I have yet to become established as a PI or I am an MD and so I'm not going to be spending that much time in lab. That actually kind of comes down to a marketing thing, I think, where you think about, okay, how much do I want this student? How much is the student going to contribute to my lab? How much is this lab worth to me? Do I do I really want to expand it and establish like a 40-person lab, you know, multiple floors of a building? Or is it just going to be like a, a one, two-person lab that explores interests that I have that come up in clinic or something like that? And I think there's, I think there's for PIs, I think there's a space for everyone. Like if given you're at a, an academic institution that that allows um, your uh, position to to explore research uh, as well as conduct your clinical practice and stuff. I think you can have like a, a tiny lab or you can have a giant lab. I, I think right now the the lab I'm working in, in quotes, is actually just me. And I just work directly with the PI and he's like, hey, I think it would be cool to look into this. Do you want to like do some reading and, and get back to me on it? And I'll be like, yeah, sure. That sounds sick. And so 
I'll, uh, we'll look into that. And I think there are other benefits that I didn't really consider beforehand because, again, my mind was focused on, like, does this research seem cool? And I think so many things have worked out. Like, he is, he's a younger PI, uh, so the age difference between us isn't huge. I never thought that that would be a big deal, but, like, because of that, because, like, he can relate to me a little more. I think our conversations are much more casual, uh, even, like, our chosen vernacular is much more casual, and... In general, I feel like we have like a really good uh, rapport between each other uh, because of that. I think the the whole thing about our um, personalities meshing was kind of just magical there, where it's like we didn't really have to think about it and we were able to to mesh. Um, but I think in the future, these these things are going to be something that I'm going to be considering a little more <laughs> because if I, I've definitely had the difficulty in the past of shooting. I don't want to say shooting too high, but I've contacted like the head of a department before where I'm like, this is exactly what I want to work in. And they've been kind enough to respond and like direct me in the, in the right direction, but it's never really gained enough traction for me to, to either join uh, the, the research lab or to do anything productive in that field. Because I think by nature of the position, the head of a department or the, the chief of a department is going to have so many other things on their mind. And unless they have explicitly made time to mentor students or something like that, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of difficult to, to make yourself a priority in that mind. But I, I think that's also kind of uh, like we, we've kind of spoken about how physicians and just in general, like people senior to us who have made an effort to mentor us have made an impact on us and have, uh, made us really want to like mentor those that that come after us but anyway I'll, I'll i'll open it up to your thoughts now i've been speaking for too long no no not at all those are those are really interesting uh things that you mentioned uh, it made me think of uh how in the topic of perspective here between mentor and mentee uh the mentee very much has perspective that i think is in some essence fundamentally selfish, mm-hmm. right? They, they want to go into a, a relationship and uh, extract whatever usefulness they can from someone's wisdom and experience and resources right. to be able to improve themselves in some way, mm-hmm. right? Whereas uh, for from the mentor side, uh, I, I think they, they have a combination of this where, where there is a certain element of selflessness that comes from uh, from mentoring someone who is at a... Uh, different stage in their uh, education or in their training, uh, and 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 wanting to to make an impact that uh, is meaningful, so that they are able to uh, hit their goals and, and be inspired in some way. But I think there there's also, uh, and this isn't a bad thing. Uh, there's also I think a selfish component. Uh, I think selfish is a strong word here, but um, uh, there's an element here where you also want to be a a good mentor. Because you want to attract good talent to to your own work, right. and you want to have this person both have an enriching experience for themselves, but also be able to contribute into the larger work and impact that you are doing in the research space. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to do that effectively, in order to uh, to, to have someone who um, who who you've taken under your wing, who will, will put in the work that I think is required to to do something that is very impactful, um, they need to be committed to you as much as you are committed to them, which requires a certain amount of sacrifice on, on both ends. But mm-hmm. I think it uh, definitely is a, a different perspective than um, than the mentee 
for, for the mentor him or herself yeah i think that that selfishness uh in terms of the the mentee's perspective is almost necessary and i think it's honestly beneficial to to the the experience for both people where if the if the mentee looks out for themselves and they're like hey this is the kind of project i want to work with this is the kind of mentor i want to work with and they're kind of checking those boxes i think that makes it easier for the for the mentor once the mentee reaches out to them you know and so the mentor knows that okay this person is willing to work on these things and then it's just a question of like kind of vetting them and i think that the selfishness on their part is twofold as well one is uh, like, what are they going to, what am I going to get out of this relationship, right? Is it is it beneficial to me? And then I also think, is it like beneficial to my lab? I, I think those are the two things where, one, do I need to show in the future that I've had a track record of mentoring? And do I need to show, do I want to attract talent, like you're saying? And the second thing is, is this person going to make my summer research uh, or the research I'm doing this summer uh, more, uh, is, is he going to fast track it towards publication? Is he going to make it so that I just have to pay an undergrad $3,000 instead of a, a postdoc uh, like $12,000? You know, am I, am I getting free labor? So, I mean, this is all speculation because we're not PIs, but we can imagine like these are, these are the things that a, a PI has to consider. And in what I think, and this this might be me being naive, is most PIs who want to mentor probably do it uh, more selflessly uh, than we think, where they have a desire to mentor, and then they kind of work around that. They're like, okay, so what what can I do? Okay, maybe I can like reduce my clinical commitment or something to spend more time mentoring, or, or maybe I can uh, make some compromises elsewhere in order to accommodate uh, mentoring. Um, I think this is an interest, I, since we have experience in this like scientific mentor-mentee relationship, I think we're able to uh, share our insights with each other on that. Um, but basically in every field, you know, you see a, a mentor-mentee relationship where it seems like in most cases, the mentee isn't like, oh, you know, I want to, I want to provide for this PI. That is why I would like to join his lab, <laughs> you know. Uh, you, you You might think like, okay, I want to, uh, further the scientific field or something like that. But outside of that, I think the selflessness, uh, in my opinion, stops there. Um, one one PI I reached out to uh, rather recently uh, responded with something that was very transparent, and, and I quite enjoyed that email. Uh, she said, uh, a mentor-mentee relationship works best when everyone achieves at least some goals. Uh, so I'd like to know what your goals are, whatever they may be. Like, do you want to publish more? Do you want to uh, know how to write a grant proposal? Like, what is it you want to do? And then on her side, it's like, which projects do I need to fast track? Like, which projects do I need more people on? So it's like, in her eyes, it was like, let's all accomplish something through this uh, uh, symbiotic relationship, if you may. And the, the thing that comes to mind uh, uh, instantly when, I, when I'm talking about that mentor-mentee relationship is Spider-Man and Iron Man, where in the, in the recent uh, uh, developments in the Marvel u- universe, you have Iron Man become a mentor for, or you have Tony Stark uh, become a mentor for Peter Parker. And uh, this is not something that I saw coming. I, I don't have good knowledge of uh, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, but... When you think about it, Spider-Man, uh, his his desire to contribute is, you know, towards society. And he's not like, oh, Mr. Stark, I would love to help you in your venture in helping save mankind. It's more of, I want to 
keep doing what I'm doing, but I want to do it better. I want to really do a good job. I want to make an impact being Spider-Man. And what does Tony Stark do? Tony Stark gives him a sick suit, you know? And so now Spider-Man has this sick suit that is has like all of this technology built into it and stuff. And at the end of the day, he's spent his time and money, et cetera, to help Spider-Man achieve Spider-Man's goals. Granted, it does help uh, Iron Man achieve his goal of world peace or whatever it may be. Now that you have another crime fighter with a, a really sweet technology uh, in a onesie, um, but yeah, I, I think that's like a, a good example, like of uh, of a mentor mentee relationship where the mentee is looking out for himself and the mentor is looking out for the mentee. Definitely, definitely, I, I totally see that. And, but one thing that you brought up that uh, made me think about how. Um, it's interesting how these perspectives evolve when we are in transitional roles in our life. And looking at this mentor-mentee dynamic, I think for a, for a long time, we have primarily been mentees right. uh, and, and we still have mentors right now. But I think we're starting to get into the phase where um, we can become mentors in some ways to, to people that are, are younger than us or are in an earlier level of training. And I, I was thinking about this recently with... Um, uh, the lab that I'm working with right now, there is uh, an undergrad in the lab who uh, is doing really great computational work, uh, but is is also interested in uh, like going into medicine and, and going to med, med school eventually. Mm-hmm. And uh, reflecting back on um, like my experiences when I was an undergrad interacting with med students, uh, either at like the free clinic or, or in other situations on campus, um, I remember I'd always be kind of struck by how... Um, uh, how supportive uh, like one particular med student was when I was at the free clinic in terms of really uh, kind of in, in, engaging with me about like uh, or, or helping me understand what the treatment plan was for a patient or uh, giving me some kind of educational input on, on what the, the diagnostic plan is for this, this patient and um, I, ju- I just really looked up to this person when they were doing this in terms of um, taking the uh the time out of out of their day to to make this very uh meaningful impact to me mm-hmm. albeit however small it was for, for them to, to to make that commitment um but i, I think it's interesting now that we that now we are getting into roles where where we can have some more impacts on people who aspire to uh kind of be where we are in our training in uh, a few years down the line and, and I, I think little things like that make me more conscious about my perspective now where um, I want to be like as encouraging as possible to this undergrad uh, after they like give a presentation or after um, like right now she's studying for the MCAT and, and just trying to give little paths of support to, to, to push people in the right direction now that we have, are transitioning into other roles where we can have impacts on, on things that are um, uh, on roles that, that we inhabited very recently mm-hmm. so, so even though it doesn't really feel like i'm that different from um from where i was in college in some ways um just knowing that we we are uh in these new um le- levels uh to, to a certain extent um i think it's important to acknowledge and, and and important to make good use of in terms of how we impact and influence uh, like the people around us, mm-hmm. but I, I I think something there that um, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, 
to, to pivot to, to a slightly different angle on perspective is something that uh, that I was thinking about more recently uh, in Chicago because, uh, so, you know, like, like I was telling you before, I was in Chicago uh, to attend my brother's wedding. And um, it, I think it, it's, it's really interesting, uh, like having peers who are in their 20s because I feel like this decade compared to other decades in our life is a very big uh, decade for potential transitions that that happen in our life to to new milestones right so so my brother he went from someone who was bachelor to now he is someone who has a wife and um uh you know while he is the same brother that i've known for such a long time there is this this kind of reflection that happens where now uh you know my brother is 26 years old and uh my mom was 26 years old when she got married so now i'm, I'm sure for him uh, you know, the night before uh, he got married, we went and watched uh, like the wedding videos from my parents' wedding, and mm. there, there's something uh, I think really powerful in um, I think seeing someone who, for for such a long time, uh, has always been uh, kind of on a on a different level from you. In this case, like a mother versus son, but this great equalizer that time is where, where once you hit the same age or same milestone that someone uh, uh, hit years in the back years in the past, mm-hmm. that there is something that then I think really uh, makes you feel more connected to the people that are close to you and make you, um, I think one, one sort of like demystify the um, kind of role that they had uh uh, at that point in, in life, you, you know, this person wasn't always a mother. This person um, wasn't always the person who uh, made sure that I uh, ate my breakfast and my lunch. But this person was someone who uh, must be feeling what I'm feeling right now about stepping into this this huge transition to my life where I'm about to uh, share something with a partner for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, the anxieties and the excitement and the nervousness all coupled together that that I'm sure my brother is feeling the moment is something that is fundamentally relatable to my uh, to my mom, and I think something that was never really shared between them until there's this new element of shared lived experience that I think uh, makes them more into peers rather than mother and son. Okay, so what you're saying is leading me to two thoughts. So the first thought. Uh, is how an event like this can uh, be the great equalizer in terms of time. And I I think it has to do with the magnitude of the event. So when you're taking something like a marriage, so, uh, you know, your parents uh, had a marriage and your grandparents and great-grandparents and on and on and on upwards, they all had this uh, same or very similar experience. And so I I think what could happen is, when when your kids reach that point in their life, I think we kind of don't really, I don't think we observe life's changes on, on a day-to-day basis. But when you, when you reach one of those points that you're like, okay, now at this time that my child is getting married, this time point is very much so similar to 
the time point in my life when I got married. And I think that kind of makes you have to come to grips with reality because until then you can view your child growing up as kind of just a general vague uh, progression of time. And a good example of this is uh, I think yesterday my mom showed me a picture uh, of me in this house uh, working with some clay, I believe, uh, on, on the dining table. And it was maybe, I don't know, 13 years ago or something like that. And it's the same house, same dining table. Uh, and I took that picture and I went into that room and I framed it as though uh, the picture was being taken from the phone, uh, if that makes any sense, uh, in that position. And I tried to imagine myself because I've never seen my you know, 11-year-old self in that position. And my mom is like uh, standing next to me. And I... It was a very interesting experience because I, I went back to my mom with, with my phone, with my mom's phone in my hand with that picture in it. And my mom looks at the picture again and she's like, if I didn't have this picture, I wouldn't remember what you looked like back then. <laughs> and I think that's a good uh, representation uh, of this this larger scale uh, ignorance to change where a day-to-day change we don't really we don't really see as extremely significant even though we change by exactly one day every day but when the change is uh, a landmark change then we we give much more importance to it i think psychologically uh, i think one another example that uh is something that you've made uh very relevant to me is whenever we're talking uh you'll say, oh man, that beard's growing longer. However, you probably don't see that much of a change every time we talk, but the moment I shave, then I look like a child. And that becomes very, very clear. So when we have this like day-by-day change of my hair uh, on my face growing by, you know, a, a fraction of a centimeter, a fraction of a centimeter, it's, you know, interesting, not remarkable. The moment I shave, it's a monumental experience. You know, I, I look like I'm 14 again. And then we give much more importance to, to that uh, to that incidence. So I think marriage is one of those things where it kind of, uh, it's a landmark in time, whether you like it or not. Once you pass that moment, that same, it kind of uh, uh, has its own equivalent in your life. So so for, for your mom's life, uh, when, she, when she got married, that was a timestamp in her life. And now that your brother has reached that timestamp, I think she and and you as well and uh, your uh, relatives have to come to grips with, okay, Simon has reached that point uh, of that point that we were once at, you know, and you have to come to grips with that and you have to understand, okay, so what are all the things that might be going through his mind now? Like, where am I going to start a family? Am I going to like uh, put down roots in, you know, San Francisco Bay Area? Am I going to move? Am I going to keep my job? Am I making enough to support my family? Are we both going to work? All these different things that probably went through your mother's mind when she got married and she uh, was having children is now going through your brother's mind. And and your mom has to kind of be uh, empathetic about that. And I think... I'm trying to think of other landmark experiences like this that that might have a, a similar effect on us. Like the one I could think about is college graduation can be very emotional for people um, if they have very vivid memories of their own college graduation. Uh, and depending on the strength of your memory, uh, maybe like, uh, you know, your high school prom or uh, getting your Eagle Scout or, or something like that, just a, a very... A pivotal moment, one could say, uh, maybe maybe a mov- moment that changed you. Um, 
that that has that kind of impact. So that's interesting. So that that that's kind of the first thing that I wanted to say based based on what you said. Uh, the second thing was. Can I have a quick comment yeah, yeah, for sure, to that, for that, that I that I just thought of yeah. right now as you were saying that? Uh, for for some reason, uh, when you were describing that to me, I I was thinking about Slaughterhouse Five and and the way that they describe this uh, this thing that this thing that happens with the protagonist, right, where he becomes unstuck in time mm-hmm. and and he moves, he jumps back and forth yeah. in this way, fully aware of. Um, uh, no, not aware when he's going to jump to the next point of time, but when he reaches that next point of time, uh, he knows what's happening there already because he he was expecting it. Uh, I I feel like I had a semblance of that feeling um, during some of the the days before this wedding and the days of the wedding, mm. in the sense that um, you know we were we were pre- preparing these uh, surprises for my uh my brother and his his now wife and um you know we, we had made this music video uh that had people singing seasons of love from, from all the folks that can make it to the wedding mm-hmm. and there was something uh that i was thinking about where you know we're making this right now and we're trying to like okay right now we're very much present in this moment like we have this deadline like okay, we need to edit this we need to like turn up the audio here we need to turn down the audio there but then once we were wrapping things up it started make me think about like, hey, this is, this is not something that is only going to be seen at this moment. Like this is something that, uh, or I, I was thinking about this when um, the night where we were watching my parents' wedding video uh, before my brother got married. Then it's like, oh wow, like we might watch this music video that that I'm making right now when my brother's like kids get married and when 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 they're doing the thing that we're doing right now in relation to to like my parents Mm -hmm. and i i think that is something that is kind of a magical uh quality of 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 these ways in which now we can capture these moments in our life that are not lost in time and can be preserved for years and generations to come in a, in a very special and a very intimate way mm-hmm. that um yeah i don't know something good said there that just made me made me think of that but yeah, it's almost anyways, like uh, well i mean we're gonna go off on a tangent but uh <laughs> okay. it's it's interesting how it's almost as though being able to take photos and videos is a way of becoming unstuck in time, you know, depending on how strongly we can uh, associate emotional, psychological experiences uh, with that video. If you if you take a video like first person and uh, it's you watching your uh, your your brother and your now sister in law getting married, if you take that first person and you watch it, you know two weeks later, two months later, you can relive that literal exact same experience, you know? And so let's say you watch it when you're 70 years old and you still have like a a visceral memory of like what was going on during that experience. Like you could feel yourself tearing up or you could feel like you could like hear blood rushing in your ears or something like that. You can get unstuck in time, you know, like that you, you are now experiencing viscerally a different time point in history that already happened in the past 
now in the future when you're 70 years old and uh that's that's kind of what uh this guy was talking about in slaughterhouse five you know where there is a linearity to time and he's already experienced everything so he knows when he gets unstuck where he's going um i think we can also analyze slaughterhouse five in a different way of okay what what is he trying to say about being unstuck in time like is this uh is this like a psychological effect of war like does this have something to do with ptsd or something like that i think that's a conversation for another time uh, purely just taking this concept of being unstuck in time out of the book. Um, the fact that photos and videos can stay theoretically forever. I was actually having this conversation with my mom where I was like, you know, maybe our memory is getting worse because we have photos to to rely on, you know? And a lot of experiences that I've had in the past, uh, when I was in the moment, I have a certain experience looking left, right, up, down, smelling things, hearing things. But then... After the event, when I watch the video over and over and over again, my memory of that event pretty much gets replaced by the video. And if I think about like, oh, what happened then? I will pretty much only remember things that happened in that video. And based on how, how long ago it was, sometimes I will only remember that video as the, the sole experience of that event that I had. And so I was wondering, like, is this is taking photos and videos making my memory worse? Should I should I be trying to remember the things that go on around me uh, without without relying on photos and videos and, you know, taking photos and videos and just like not looking at them. And that's that's one of the reasons why when we were traveling in South America, I wanted to take pictures and then not instantly reminisce so that I right. could have my own record of what happened there. And then later to like jog your memory, you use the photos. And I think over time, it's almost inevitable that that those photos will replace those experiences. And based on how comprehensive your videos are and stuff, I think that'll dictate what you remember of the thing in the future, at least in my experience. Um, But yeah, if you think about, you know, 200, 300 years ago when there, there weren't photos and there were paintings and then before there were paintings, those people did not have this like immense power of of taking a snapshot of history and immortalizing it in video or audio, uh, like we are immortalizing our audio right now. Um, yeah. And so they they didn't have that magical benefit of becoming unstuck in time as a merit of uh, using photo and video. Yeah, definitely. I I didn't think about this element of how video capture or any 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 kind of um, capturing of a, of a moment for later reference can in some senses uh, or in some ways dilute the uh, sensory uh, recall that you have of a certain event mm-hmm. but um, yeah I, I feel like it's a trade-off because like you had mentioned earlier we don't notice these changes that are happening on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. so if we didn't have that photo from when you were a kid you would never really remember what you look like as a kid, right. right? But at the same time, watching watching a video of yourself uh, doing, you know, or like playing your first soccer game when you were nine years old, uh, that the extent of what was captured in that video will um, expand to become the only thing that you might remember from that experience. You 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 may not uh, remember the this the smell or the other sounds that were happening or the way you were feeling in that moment because of, uh, I think that kind of dilution that something like that can bring. But, um, yeah, that's really interesting that, uh, you have brought that up. And I think 
one thing that I, I was thinking about that similar to this idea of like not wanting to reminisce immediately after something uh, a moment is captured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something that seems related is is the uh, awareness that I think can happen sometimes where, you know, for me during moments of the wedding, um, I wasn't thinking about like immediately reminiscing after like seeing a picture of what was happening right now. Mm-hmm. I think what I was thinking in my head in somewhat of an out-of-body way was the the input that I'm getting right now from my senses is something that I will go back to and revisit at many points in my life. Right. And I think just the awareness of that was something that just made me like step back for a second, like, whoa, I need to make sure that I'm like trying to capture as much in my own like mental camera right now, because this is the reference that I'm going to be going back to uh, during so many moments of my life. And I want to make sure that this is at as high a resolution as I can, I can get and store in, in my head. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think that um, that awareness that, that what's happening right now is something that is special and that does not happen all the time. And that is in some ways like a once in a lifetime experience, you know, to see, uh, a, a family member uh, that's as close to you, uh, a brother, get married. Ho- hopefully, this is the only time I say that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it, it is just such a uh, a special thing that I'd imagine now that I think we we are older, but also because we are going through some very transformative years in the next coming decade. Uh, I'd imagine we, we would have more of these experiences where we'd want to make sure we capture everything in the moment as much as we can because we 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 know that there will inevitably be a sense of uh, like nostalgia that is specific to the moment we're experiencing in real time and trying to savor that as much as possible in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I think the, the, the concept of this mental camera and like making sure that we get our perspective of that thing like nailed into our head uh, in the moment so that we can have that, uh, we can relive it later. Um, that I think that that is a good practice in order to remember things well and like being being conscious about remembering something in the moment. I think, I think that's a good practice for remembering something and instead of being like, oh, I've got photos, all right, let's move on to the next thing because I think a lot of things in life um, I, I've thought about in that way, especially like when I go hiking and I see like a really cool like scenery or something like that, I'll be like, whoa, that's really cool. And then I'll take a picture and I'll move on. And I think only over the last maybe like three, four years have I even thought about, oh, you know, I should really like take in this moment and commit it to memory just so I can relive it in a, in a more visceral way. And I, I think the first time I thought about that, I, I was in uh, Yosemite with one of my friends and I was taking a picture of Half Dome and there have been millions of pictures of Half Dome taken in the past, you know, and this was just nothing special just from our campsite. I looked up, took a picture on my phone just because I thought that the colors from the sunset falling on Half Dome were really cool. And my friend was like, you know, if you if you just like try and look at it and try and like ingrain that in your memory and don't use the photo as like a crutch for that. Uh, you'll remember the event more clearly. And just the fact that he said that makes me remember that moment very clearly. I do still have a photo of it, uh, but it is, it is definitely the backup. And I, I, think, I think we just kind of need to do that all the time. 
um when you brought up like oh when you're nine years old and you're playing soccer I started thinking about like soccer games that, that I went to when I, when I was little and I do have f- like fragmented memories of being on the actual soccer field I've never seen photos of myself playing soccer and that might be part of it but everything is from my own perspective you know like I see the field I see the yellow grass you know I remember playing goalie and then having to to have this like spatial awareness haha behind me of like where the goal is you know that, that's funny I also played goalie but I think that's because both of us are big <laughs> or I was gonna say small lazy athletes. oh <laughs> no I, I think but. I played I played forward for, I mean, this was all like, you know, junior, tiny tots soccer. So I don't think it really mattered. I cycled through all of the positions. Um, Yeah. So I I remember it from my perspective. Um, When you said like get a mental picture of something, I immediately thought of Cam Jansen, the the childhood book series. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about this kid who solves mysteries and she has photographic memory. And so basically she can go somewhere Mm. and be like, click and like, you know, commit something to memory immediately. And I remember wanting to kind of be like her and, uh, you know, trying to like photograph things into my memory as a child and be like, okay, I'm going to remember this forever, you know, all of which I have Mm. forgotten. Uh, But it, it was a good sentiment. Um, in terms of the out of body experience though, of like kind of being like, okay, like experience this moment. I have at many points in my life, um, found myself seeing myself from above, if that makes any sense. Like I just imagine myself like in the sky or something looking down at myself. And I remember the first time I did this was it was a rainy day and I was just kind of like sitting, looking at the rain drop on the window And I was just like thinking about the rain and looking at the rain drip down the window. Uh, And I was like hearing the rain and stuff like that. It's like a little bit cold, uh, but we have like the heater going on inside. And so just experiencing all of these different things. And I sat there for so long that I started thinking, what does it look like that this guy is just sitting there by the window? And so right then I like kind of zoomed out and I was like, okay. So I started observing myself, you know, imagining myself. Uh, like sitting by the window and then I could imagine like you know where my hair was parted what like shirt I was wearing and that kind of stuff and I started doing that more often where I kind of think about where like this body that is me is located and what is its uh, uh, location relative to like the things around it and I I guess a more recent time that this happened uh, consciously uh, was uh, when we were in Arica and we were looking at the, the the llamas and were they llamas or what was the other thing? Vicuñas? I don't know. Oh, alpacas. Vicuñas, alpacas, llamas. One of those. We were looking at those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were on this random hill on a really weird, uh, curvy desert mountain thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember being like, oh, where are we on the planet right now? And just thinking, oh, we are at this like northernmost portion of Chile, uh, hanging out with like some random dude's car. Uh, like, you know, if we got stranded here, we'd die guaranteed, you know? And then I like zoomed in a little more and I was like, Oh look, it's, it's, uh, the man, Dan and the man, Sam and me like hanging out around with all these llamas that are crossing the road, uh, or alpacas that are crossing the road. And then there's a truck going and I could kind of see the three of us like hanging out there and like walking around and stuff. And I think that kind of goes back to this earlier concept of photos and, and hear me out. This might be kind of a stretch, but I think only when we see photos of ourself 
or when we see ourselves in a mirror or something uh, or in the reflection of a lake or something like that do we really separate that person from i uh and so so the, the reason i'm saying that is when i look at photos from when i'm younger i think like oh that kid did sports and boy scouts and that kind of thing but then i also think i did sports and boy scouts and all those sorts of things but since we look so different that kid is almost a totally different person from me you know but if you take a photo in this moment you know and you look at it instantly the association is immediate that guy is me you know that guy cut his hair like that because he's a dodo you know that guy <laughs> is you know he's working on this project because he thinks that this is interesting things like that and you are synonymous with that person and i think that before mirrors and stuff were a thing the only person you could see who i was uh, in the third person was through like reflection in the water, which uh, depending on where you live, you may or may not be able to see that because you can't really see your reflection in the ocean because on beaches, it's like foamy and stuff. Anyway, I digress. I think uh, the fact that before the, the fact that now that we have photos and stuff that we're able to see immediately, we are able to say that is me, you know, that person is I, and we're able to do that over an extended period of time. Whereas uh, I think beforehand, there was n there was probably less of a separation between I, the doer of things, and I, the experiencer of things. Like the guy inside my brain who uh, is controlling this giant machine and doing all of these things versus the thing that actually does the things. Anyway, I know, I know that might be getting uh, a little bit off the deep end, uh, but if you have any <laughs> thoughts on that, please feel free to share them now. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think that was great, dude. I think uh, I, I think that is really interesting perspective on on these the awareness of these different snapshots throughout your life and, and how uh, the these time points relate to yourself in your present moment, but then also connect to you in this uh, very special way to your past and mm -hmm. potentially to your future in some ways. But um, I, I I did want to circle back to uh if we go back maybe like 20 30 minutes yep. uh when i interrupted you <laughs> you had two things to say <laughs> and i said hey real quick quick thought on this and i just derailed the conversation do you remember what that number two i was? do i do i do but nice. uh, if you okay, okay i i don't want to intentionally steer it back there i'm i'm ready for it i'm ready for it steer all me right, back right. steer me back uh, so putting the train back on the rails we were talking about perspective and, and you had, you had just brought up, uh, this thing about, uh, your, your mom's wedding, uh, being on screen and then your brother's wedding being in existence at the moment, you know, and, and coming yep. to terms with that. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to bring up is I guess it might've <laughs> had its roots earlier in the conversation. Uh, it had, it had to do with what you said about, uh, our ability to mentor and where we are in that path. And, and you said like, now we're getting to a point where we are able, like we have both the bandwidth and the skill set to be able to mentor people uh, underneath us. And you mentioned the undergrad in your lab and the fact that you can provide him with pointers and teach him things if, if need be, et cetera. And this, this got me thinking about how, I, I don't really want to call this a food chain, but it's basically, it's almost a, a, 
a one-way road from top to bottom of people helping others where uh, you think about, I don't know if you did this in your elementary school or middle school, but we occasionally had these like buddy programs where you had a buddy who was like two years older than you. And uh, like yeah. if you needed help, like finding a book in the library or something, I don't know. I, I don't remember who my buddy was. I'm so sorry, buddy, if you're listening, uh, but I don't remember <laughs> who my older buddy or my younger buddy was. Uh, did, did you ever do like reading buddies? Um, only within Would our You like grade. read with a Yeah. Mm, I see, I see. We, we, we did something where we would uh, pair up with someone who was like two or three years younger mm-hmm. and then we'd just like read books together, which I think is a pretty cool thing for like elementary school kids to do, right? Like a fourth grader trying to teach like a second grader yeah. uh, with their reading. I think, well... Because that's, you just don't think about that. Yeah, I, I, I did have a similar experience to that. Um, but my, my, my reading buddy was like 30 years older than me <laughs> and it was my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and I would force her to reread the same like three page picture book to me over and over again. <laughs> we have all of these picture books from like when I was a child that my mother has uh, repeated so many times that she can uh, recite from memory. But anyway, so so there's this concept of uh, like a buddy system where you have an older buddy or a younger buddy that you're either uh, helping or being helped by. And it's always like that older person helping the younger person, you know. And when we go to high school, like you might have TAs in your classes that are people from older, uh, from from years above you that that are helping you grading papers or helping you with whatever you need. And then in college, we also have the TAing system. We have like mentor-mentee between like med school and undergrad and then so on and so forth. You have PI to med student or PI to undergrad and then chief of department to PI or whatnot, right? And there's a point at which that ends uh, where you have no one more senior to you, no one mentoring you, et cetera. Uh, which I, I think may not totally be true because you can always find a mentor, uh, even if it's a person younger than you who has more experience in the field or something. I think I think everyone can always uh, provide something meaningful to other people regardless of your level. But I think generally how it goes is people, like you, you go up the food chain like this. And so I think we've always been in a place of taking more than what we can give, you know, where it's like that's just been our place in the uh, like academic context of the, the people older than us mentoring us. And once you become a professor, I was thinking like, oh, wow, basically all they do is give, you know, like who are they taking from? You know, they've reached the position that they want to be in in life or maybe they're still moving up, but all they do is give. And the the, the reason I was thinking about this was I have recommenders who have written me countless recommendations, you know, and all they do is give, you know, they mentor me and they provide lab experience and then they provide recommendations. And uh, if I if I ever have like a difficult decision I have to make, they provide me with like counsel and advice and all this kind of stuff. All they do is give, you know, and they're giving it to someone, me, who does not give them anything back. You know, sometimes if I if I go on travels or something, I'll, I'll bring them back something that uh, reminded me of them. Uh, outside of that, like they're not getting anything from me. It's a, very much a one way relationship. And I thought, like, how much mu- how much mu- must it suck to just uh, invest so much in this child who is not giving anything to you? And I was wondering, like, how could they possibly come to grips with that, that they're giving so much? And <laughs> I was thinking, maybe once I get to that position, how I am going to think of, of it, and I am sure of this, is... I have taken so much in my life. All I've done is take, 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 you know? Uh, and Now you just have this debt that you need to, to pay. Right, right, now it's time to give, you know? Now it's time to, to right, repay right. that debt. And I was wondering if 
like the people older than us, if that's how they see it, or if they just see it like as their duty in that position to to do to do that sort of thing. I, I have heard from some people who say like, yeah, once you are in this position, like it's part of your role to like write recommendations and do, do that sort of thing. That's part of your position. So I, I know that for a fact, uh, once I reach that position, that that'll be my view of it. I do also want um, I, I've always kind of felt like, OK, I, I've since I've been taking so much. Uh, I wonder how much I can give right now in order to kind of even that out, you know, where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm not just a parasite on the rest of society. And I like one way I do that is like, I, I really enjoy like editing people's essays and helping people with interviews and stuff. And, you know, I was thinking again, like kind of like an out of body thing from their perspective. What is it like? Like, oh, my God, Gautam is just editing my essays and, you know, helping me with interviews and stuff. All he does is give. All I do is take him. I the parasite. And at the end of the day, this, this is the tangent that I wanted to go on based on, uh, based on that thing that you said. And I don't know what the answer to this is. Like, maybe we're all parasites. Maybe it's just divinely symbiotic. Uh, how I just think about it as like, I will give and I will take. And uh, I might not give and take to the same person, but I will give to someone and take from someone. And that will make the world go round. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like the goal in kind of what you described is for if there was a, a net calculation at the end of your life, if uh, across all of the interactions and the people that you've met, uh, if you weigh the, uh, the time you have taken compared to the time you've given, if that evens out, then you're a good man. <laughs> ideally, ideally you gave more than what you, there, there, ideally, ideally. <laughs> ideally, but at the, but at least, right. at least you, you got a big, you got to reach that big that, that. fat zero <laughs> and then you're good. <laughs> definitely yeah definitely definitely striving to to have a tip the other way i i think is uh it is the more like noble goal but uh yeah that is that that is interesting that i feel like we're slowly hitting these inflection points where the uh the scale is shifting the other way in some ways but yeah i i feel like with that that's probably a a, a good place to wrap up what do you think sounds good man well uh, an interesting experience for sure. We spoke a little about perspective and then went down a, a, a few tangential rabbit holes. But um, I guess at the end of the day, we are we are talking about perspective at the end. Like when you give and when you take, like what, what is the difference in perspective between those people? Yeah, I, I feel like where we ended up was still, I think, more connected to where we started right. compared to some of the things we've talked about in the past. So. No, you, you did a good job looping it back, dude, or else I would have I gone <laughs> off the deep end and just kept swimming. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Good. Well, all right, then. Uh, awesome, dude. With that, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to our future selves for tuning in, and uh, we will catch you in the next one. Bye-bye. That was a fun one, dude.